Chapter Three, Part Seven and Eight of A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. A History of Greece to the Death of Alexander the Great, Volume One, by John Bagnell Bury. Chapter Three, Part Seven and Eight. Chapter Three. THE GROWTH OF SPARTA AND THE FALL OF THE ARISTOCRACIES PART Seven, THE TYRANNIES OF CENTRAL GREECE About the middle of the seventh century, three tyrannies arose in central Greece in the neighborhood of the Isthmus, at Corinth, at Sicyon, and at Megara. In each case the development was different, and is in each case instructive. In Sicyon the tyranny is brilliant and beneficent, in Corinth brilliant and oppressive, in Megara, short-lived and followed by long intestine struggles. The ruling clan of the Bacchiades at Corinth was overthrown by Sipselis, who had put himself at the head of the people. A characteristic legend was formed at an early time about the birth of Sipselis, suggested by the connection of his name with a jar. His mother was a Bacchiad lady named Labda, who, being lame and consequently compelled to wed out of her own class, married a certain Etion, a man of the people. Having no children, and consulting the Delphic oracle on the matter, Etion received this reply. High honour is thy due, Etion, yet no man doth thee honour, as were right. Labda, thy wife, will bear a huge millstone, destined to fall on them who rule alone, and free thy Corinth from their rightless might. The prophecy came to the ears of the Bacchiads, and was confirmed to them by another oracle. So, as soon as Labda's child was born, they sent ten men to slay it. When the men came to the court of Aetion's dwellings, they found that he was not at home, and they asked Labda for the infant. Suspecting nothing, she gave it to one of them to take in his arms, but, as he was about to dash it to the ground, the child smiled at him, and he had not the heart to slay it. He passed it on to the second, but he too was moved with pity, and so it was passed round from hand to hand, and none of the ten could find it in his heart to destroy it. Then, giving the infant back to the mother, and going out of the courtyard, they reviled each other for their weakness, and resolved to go in again and do the deed together. But Labda, listening at the door, overheard what they said, and hid the child in a jar, where none of them thought of looking. Thus the boy was saved, but the men falsely reported to the Bacchiads that they had performed their errand. The Bacchiads were banished and their property confiscated, dangerous persons were executed, and Sipselis took the reins of government into his own hands. Of the rule of Sipselis himself we know little. He is variously represented as harsh and mild. His son, Periander, succeeded, and of him more is recorded. The general features of the Sipsilid tyrannies were a vigorous colonial and commercial policy, and the encouragement of art. One of the earliest triumphs of Sipsilis was probably the reduction of Corsera, which had formed a fleet of its own, and had grown to be a rival of its mother in the Ionian seas. It has already been mentioned that the earliest battle of ships between two Greek states was supposed to have been fought between Corinth and Corsera. The attempt of Corinth to form a colonial empire was an interesting experiment. The idea of Sipsilis corresponded to our modern colonial system, in which the colonies are in a relation of dependence to the mother, and not to that of the Greeks, 
in which the colony was an independent sovereign state. Geographical conditions alone rendered it out of the question to apply the new principle to Syracuse, but the success at Corsera was followed up by a development of Corinthian influence in the northwest of Greece. The Arcanian peninsula of Lucas was occupied and made into an island by piercing a channel through the narrow isthmus. Anactorian was founded on the south side of the Ambracian Gulf, and inland on the north side Ambracia. Apollonia was planted on the coast of Epirus, and farther north Corsera, under the auspices of her mother city, colonized Epidamnus. At a latter period, and in another quarter of the Greek world, a son of Periander founded Potidaea in the Chalcidic Peninsula. Sipsilis and Periander did their utmost to promote the commercial activity of their city. In the middle of the seventh century the rival Eubonian cities, Chalcis and Eritrea, were the most important merchant states of Greece. But fifty years later they had somewhat declined. Corinth and Aegina were taking their place. Their decline was brought about by their rivalry, which led to an exhausting war for the Lelantine Plain. It is said that this struggle assumed the larger proportion of a Greek mercantile war, involving on the one side Corinth and Samos as allies of Chalcis, on the other Megara and Miletus as allies of Eritrea. The dates are uncertain, but the fact seems to be that the strife was protracted and interrupted, and at some points in its course it may have led to consequences beyond Euboea. Archilochus sang how Euboea's spear-famed lords shoot not with slings or bows, but smite with swords. And Theognis of Megara at a much later date speaks of the end of the war as a recent event. Cerinthus fallen, the Lelantine plain waste, and the vineyards, all the good have fled, the city in the power of evil men. Oh, might the Sipsilids even be sped! An utterance which shows that the end of the war was complicated by domestic factions. Eritrea suffered most in the struggle, she lost her share in the Lelantine plain, and she presently lost also her continental territory, the plain of Oropus, which in the course of the sixth century passed under the power of Thebes. Moreover, her sway over the island of Andros, Tenos, and Seos was undermined, and they came after a while under Athenian influence. The decline of Chalcis was perhaps promoted by a radical change in the foreign policy of Corinth. This city had formerly cultivated the alliance of Samos. She now deserted this alliance and formed a friendship with her old foe, Miletus. The cause of this change was, at least in great measure, the natural sympathy of tyrannies. Thrasybulus, the powerful tyrant of Miletus, sympathized with Periander, the powerful tyrant of Corinth. This change in policy is connected with the change in the balance of mercantile power. Corinth is more prosperous than ever, and Aegina is beginning to share with her the place which was hitherto held by the cities of Euboea. The foreign relations of Periander extended to Egypt, and there are two indications of his intercourse with the Egyptian monarchs Necho and Sometticus II. His nephew and successor was called after the last-named king. Moreover, we may guess that the canal works of Necho suggested to Periander undertakings of the same kind, the small canal which he actually cut at Lucas, and the great canal which he designed to cut through the isthmus of Corinth itself. But a Greek tyrant had not at his command the slave labor of which an Egyptian king disposed, and the design fell through. 
an enterprise more than once attempted since, but not accomplished till our own day. Had Periander had the resources to carry out his idea, the subsequent history of Greek military and naval operations would have been largely changed. While the most successful of the tyrants, like Periander, furthered material civilization, they often manifested an interest in intellectual pursuits, and did something for the promotion of art. A new form of poetry, called the Dithrium, was developed at Corinth during this period, the rude strains which were sung at vintage feasts in honor of Dionysus being molded into an artistic shape. The discovery was attributed to Arion, a mythical minstrel, who was said to have leaped into the sea under the compulsion of mariners who robbed him, and to have been carried to Corinth on the back of a dolphin, the fish of Dionysus. In architecture, Corinthian skill had made an important contribution to the development of the temple. In the course of the seventh century, men began to translate into stone the old shrine of brick and wood, and stone temples arose in all parts of the Greek world, the lighter Ionic form in Ionia, the heavier Doric in the elder Greece. By the invention of roof tiles, Corinthian workmen rendered it practicable to give considerable inclination to the roof, and thus in each gable of the temple a large triangular space was left, inviting the sculptor to fill it with a story in marble. The pediment, as we name it, was called by the Greeks the eagle, and thus it was said that Corinth had discovered the eagle. Seven great columns of limestone, which till the other day were almost the only sign that marked the site of ancient Corinth, are probably a relic of the reign of Periander. They belonged to the colonnade of a large Doric temple, with two separate chambers. It was a sanctuary of Apollo, and the second chamber was perhaps a treasury. The dedicatory offerings of the Sipsilids at Delphi and Olympia were rich and remarkable. The treasure-house of the Corinthians at Delphi was ascribed to Sipsilis. More famous, on account of the legend which was in later times attached to it, was a large chest of cedar-wood, which was dedicated, probably by Periander, in the shrine of Hera at Olympia. It was called the Chest of Sipsilis, and was said to have been the place in which Labda hid her child. This story overlooked the fact that a chest was an obvious place to search in, and fabricated the theory that the Corinthians called a chest a jar. Three sides of the chest were ornamented with mythological scenes which ran around in five hands. It was still in existence eight centuries later, and a traveller who saw it then has left a minute description, which enables us to form a notion how Greek art in the days of Periander attempted the treatment of legend. Judged by a modern standard, the government of Periander was strict, though in accordance with the practice in other cities and with the Greek views of the time. There were laws forbidding men to acquire large numbers of slaves or to live beyond their income, suppressing excessive luxury and idleness, hindering country people from fixing their abode in the city. In his home life Periander was unlucky. He married Melissa, the daughter of Procles, who had made himself tyrant of Epidaurus. It was believed that he put her to death, and this led to an irreconcilable quarrel with his son, Lycophron. The story is that Procles invited his two grandchildren, Lycophron and an elder brother, to his court. When they were departing, he said to them, Do you know, boys, who killed your mother? The elder was dull and did not understand, but the words sank into the heart of Lycophron, 
and henceforward he showed dislike and suspicion towards his father. Periander, pressing him, discovered what Procles had said, and the affair ended, for the time, in a war with Epidaurus in which Procles was captured, and the banishment of Lycophron to Corsera. As years went on and Periander was growing old, seeing that his elder son was dull of wit, he desired to hand over the government to Lycophron. But the son was implacable, and did not deign even to answer his father's messenger. Then Periander sent his daughter to intercede, but Lycophron replied that he would never come to Corinth while his father was there. Periander then decided to go himself to Corsera and leave Corinth to his son, but the Corsarians were so terrified at the idea of having the tyrant among them that they slew Lycophron in order to foil the plan. For this act Periander chastised them heavily. The great tyrant died and was succeeded by his nephew, Semeticus, who, having ruled for a few years, was slain. With him the tyranny of the Sipsilids came to an end, and an aristocracy of merchants was firmly established. At the same time the Sipsilid colonial system partly broke down, for Corsera became independent and hostile, while the Ambraciots set up a democracy. But over her other colonies Corinth retained her influence, and was on friendly terms with all of them. The natural sympathy of tyrannies affected the relations of Corinth and Megara. Sometime after the inauguration of the Sipsilid tyranny, a similar constitutional change occurred at Megara, and a friendship sprang up between the two cities. The mercantile development of Megara, famous for her weavers, had enriched the nobles, who held the political power and oppressed the peasants with a grinding despotism. Then Theogenes arose as a deliverer and made himself tyrant. The example of Sipsilis, and probably his direct influence and help, had something to do with the enterprise of Theogenes. A connection between the tyrannies of Corinth and Megara seems implied in the rancorous reference which the Megarian poet Theognis makes to the Sipsilids. Having obtained a bodyguard, Theogenes surprised and massacred the aristocrats. His term of tyranny was marked by one solid work, the construction of an aqueduct. He was overthrown, and did not, like Sipsilis, transmit his power to his descendants. Then followed a political struggle between the aristocracy, which had regained its power, and the people. But the time for an unmitigated aristocracy had gone by. The demos could not be ignored or brushed aside. Concessions were wrung from the government. The economical conditions of the peasants was relieved by a measure which forced the capitalists to pay back the interest which they had extorted while the political disabilities were relieved by extending citizenship to the country population and admitting the tillers of the soil to the assembly. These conflicts and social changes are reflected in the poems of Theognis, who meditated and lamented them. He sang in the early part of the sixth century, pouring out his heart to Cyrnus, a young noble of the Polypaid family. He had made an unsuccessful voyage, lost his land and fortune, and consequently his influence. He judges severely the short-sighted, greedy policy of his own caste, and sees that it is likely to lead to another tyranny. On the other hand, his sympathies are with an aristocratic form of government, and he discerns with dismay the growth of democratic tendencies, and the changed condition of the country folk, whom he regarded with true aristocratic contempt. The exclusiveness of the nobility was breaking down in the new circumstances, and mixed marriages were coming in. He cries, Unchanged the walls, but, ah, how changed the folk! 
the base who knew erstwhile nor law nor right but dwelled like deer with goatskin for a cloak are now ennobled and oh sorry plight the nobles are made base in all men's sight it was not long before the importance of megara as a power in greece dwindled the war with Athens, which resulted in the loss of the island of Salamis, was decisive for her own decline, and for the rise of her rival. The rise of a tyranny in agricultural Sicyon seems to have occurred much about the same time as at mercantile Corinth. We know nothing of the circumstances. The name of the first founder, who was of low birth, is said to have been Orthogoras. The first of the house, of whom we have any historical records, is Cleisthenes, who ruled in the first quarter of the sixth century. His hostility to Argos, which claimed lordship over Sicyon, the part he took in the sacred war of Delphi, and the splendor of his court, are the chief facts of which we know. He was engaged in an Argive war. He would not permit Rhapsodists to recite the Homeric poems at Sicyon, because there was so much in them about Argos and the Argives, and he did away with the worship of the Argive hero Andristus, whose cult in Sicyon had been conspicuous. It is also stated that not wishing the tribes of Sicyon and Argos should have the same names, he substituted for the Dorian tribes, Heleus, Pamphili, Damaneus, the insulting names Swinites, Assites, and Pigites, and called his own tribe Archeloi, rulers, and that this nomenclature endured for sixty years after his death, when the old Dorian names were restored, and Archeloi changed to Aegelius. In this form the story seems highly unlikely, for such a change would have been a greater slight to the masses of Sicyons than to the Argives. But it is quite possible that the tyrant changed the name of his own tribe, Aegelius, to Archeloi, and we can understand how the story might have arisen out of a word spoken in jest. I have changed my goats into rulers of the folk, I have a mind to change those Argive Hellas into the rest of them into swine and asses. Cleisthenes married his daughter Ergarista to an Athenian noble, of the famous family of the Alsmaeonids. A legend is told of the wooing of Argarista, which illustrates the tyrant's wealth and hospitality, and the social ideas of the age. On the occasion of an Olympian festival, at which he had himself won in the chariot race, Cleisthenes made proclamation to the Greeks, that all who aspired to the hand of his daughter should assemble at Sicyon, sixty days hence, and be entertained at his court for a year. At the end of the year he would decide who was most worthy of his daughter. Then there came to Sicyon all the Greeks who had a high opinion of themselves or of their families. From Sybaris and Cyrus in the far west, from Epidamnus and Aetolia, Arcadia and Elis, Argos and Athens, Euboa and Thessaly, the suitors for the hand of Agarista came. Cleisthenes tested their accomplishments for a year. He tried them in gymnastic exercises, but laid most stress on their social qualities. The two Athenians, Hippocleides and Megacles, pleased him best, but to Hippocleides of these two he most inclined. The day appointed for the choice of the husband came, and Cleisthenes sacrificed a hundred oxen, and feasted all the suitors and all the folk of Sicyon. After the dinner the wooers competed in music and general conversation. Hippocleides was the most brilliant, and, as his success seemed assured, he bade the flute-player strike up and began to dance. 
Cleisthenes was surprised and disconcerted at his behavior, and his surprise became disgust when Hippocleides, who thought he was making a decisive impression, called for a table and danced Spartan and Athenian figures on it. The host controlled his feelings, but when Hippocleides proceeded to dance on his head, he could no longer resist, and called out, O son of Tisander, you have danced away your bride. But the Athenian only replied, Hippocleides careth not, and danced on. Megacles was chosen for Agarista, and rich presents were given to the disappointed suitors. Section 8. The Sacred War, the Panhellenic Games the most important achievement of Cleisthenes, and that which won him most fame in the Greek world, was his championship of the Delphic oracle. The temple of Delphi, or Pitho, lay in the territory of the Phocian town of Crisa. A Delphic hymn tells how Apollo came to Crisa, a hill facing to westward, under snowy Parnassus, a beetling cliff overhangs it, beneath is a hollow, rugged glen. Here, he said, I will make me a fair temple, to be an oracle for men. The poet's picture is perfect. The sanctuary of rocky Pitho was terraced on a steep slope, hard under the bare, sheer cliffs of Parnassus, looking down upon the deep glen of the Pleistes, an austere and majestic scene, supremely fitted for the utterance of the oracles of God. The city of Crisa lay on a vine-tressed hill to the west of the temple, and commanded its own plain which stretched southward to the sea. The men of Crisa claimed control over the Delphinians and the oracle, and levied dues on the visitors who came to consult the deity. The Delphinians desired to free themselves from the control of the Crisaeans, and they naturally looked for help to the great league of the north, in which the Thessalians, the ancient foes of the Phocians, were now the dominant member. The folks who belonged to this religious union were the dwellers around, the shrine of Demeter at Anthella, close to the pass of Thermopylae, and hence they were called the Amphictyones of Anthella or Philae. The league was probably old. It was formed, at all events, before the Thessalians had incorporated Achaean Pythotius in Thessaly, for the people of Pythotius were an independent member of the league, which included the Locrians, Phocians, Boeotians, and Athenians, as well as the Dorians, Malians, Dolopians, Aeneanes, Thessalians, Perhaebians, and Magnetes. The members of the League were bound not to destroy, or cut off running water from, any city which belonged to it. The Amphictions espoused warmly the cause of Apollo, and his Delphian servants, and declared a holy war against the men of Crisa, who had violated the sacred territory. And Delphi found a champion in the south as well as in the north. The tyrant of Sicyon across the gulf went forth against the impious city. It was not enough to conquer Crisa and force her to make terms or promises. As she was situated in such a strong position, commanding the road from the sea to the sanctuary, it was plain that the utter destruction of the city was the only conclusion of the war which could lead to the assured independence of the oracle. The Amphictions and Sisonians took the city after a sore struggle, raised it to the ground, and slew the indwellers. The Christian plain was dedicated to the god, solemn and heavy curses were pronounced against whosoever should till it. The great gulf which sunders northern Greece from the Peloponnesus, and whose old name, Crisaean, testified to the greatness of the Phocian city, received after this its familiar name, Corinthian, from the city of the Isthmus. 
One of the consequences of this war was the establishment of a close connection between Delphi and the Infectionary of Anthela. The Delphic shrine became a second place of meeting, and the league was often called the Delphic Amphictyony. The temple was taken under the protection of the league. The administration of the property of the gods was placed in the hands of the Hieronymenes, or sacred counsellors, who met twice a year in spring and autumn, both at Anthela and at Delphi. Two Hieronymenes were sent as its representatives by each member of the league. The oracle and the priestly nobles of Delphi thus won a position of independence. Their great career of prosperity and power began. The Pythian games were now reorganized on a more splendid scale, and the ordering of them was one of the duties of the Amphictyons. The festival became, like the Olympian, a four-yearly celebration, being held in the middle of each Olympiad. Gymnastic contests were introduced, whereas before there had been only a musical competition, and money prizes were abolished for a wreath of bay. Cleisthenes won the laurel in the first chariot race in the new hippodrome which was built in the plain below the ruins of Crisa. Hard by was the stadium, or race-course, in which the athletes ran and wrestled, and it was not till after many years had passed that the new stadium was built high up above Delphi itself, close under the cliffs. Cleisthenes was remembered as having taken a prominent part both in the sacred war and in the institution of the games, and he commemorated the occasion of his victory by founding a Pythian games at Sicyon, which afterwards, by a stroke of the irony of history, became associated with the hated hero Adrastus. Before the sacred war it would seem that Sicyon had a treasure-house within the Delphic precinct, some traces of its round form, some traces possibly of its primitive sculptures, have been discovered, but not long after the war the old building had to make way for a larger house in the shape of a Doric temple, and it is hard not to believe that it was Cleisthenes himself who erected this lordlier treasury for Sicyon. Much about the same time two other Panhellenic festivals were instituted at Isthmus and Nemea. It is uncertain whether the Isthmian games in honor of Poseidon were founded by Periander, or in commemoration of the abolition of tyranny at Corinth after the death of Semeticus. The games in honor of Nemean Zeus were administered by the little town of Cleone, and seem to have been established by the influence of Argos. Both the Isthmian and the Nemean festivals were too yearly. Thus from the beginning of the sixth century four Panhellenic festivals are celebrated, two in the Peloponnesus, one on the Isthmus, one in the north, and throughout the course of Grecian history the prestige of these gatherings never wanes. These four Panhellenic festivals helped to maintain a feeling of fellowship among all the Greeks, and we may suspect that the promotion of this feeling was the deliberate policy of the rulers who raised these games to Panhellenic dignity. But it must not be overlooked that the festivals were themselves only a manifestation of a tendency toward unity, which had begun in the eighth century. We have already seen how this tendency was promoted by colonization, and confirmed by the introduction of a common name for the Greek race. About the middle of the seventh century we meet the name Panhellenus in a poem of Archilochus, and the phrase Panhellenus and Achaeans occurs in a passage, which may be still earlier, in the Homeric catalogue of the ships. The Panhellenic idea, the conception of a common Hellenic race with common interests, was encouraged by the poetical records of the heroic age. The Trojan War was remembered as a common enterprise, 
in which northern and southern Greece had joined, and the ancient poets had called the whole host Achaeans, or Argives, indifferently. The Homeric poems were a bond among all men of Greek speech, and the memory of Troy was an ingredient in a sentiment which, though we cannot call it national, was distinctly a sentiment of community. The feeling of community was also displayed in the recognition of the Pythian Apollo as the chief and supreme oracle of Greece. The growth of the prestige of the Delphic god might almost have been used as a touchstone for measuring the growth of the feeling of community. As a meeting-place for pilgrims and envoys from all quarters of the Greek world, Delphi served to keep distant cities in touch with one another, and to spread news, purposes which were affected in a lesser degree by the Panhellenic festivals. The tendencies to unity were also shown by the leagues, chiefly of a religious kind, which were formed among neighboring states. The Maritime League of Caloria is an instance, the northern Amphictyony of Anthella is another, and we shall presently have a glimpse of the Ionic Federation of Delos. Early in the sixth century we find the cities of Italy bound together by a sort of commercial league, which was indicated in the character of their coinage. We shall soon see Sparta uniting a large part of the Peloponnesus in a confederacy under her presidency. These tendencies to unity never resulted in a political union of all Hellas. The Greek race never became a Greek nation, for the Panhellenic idea was weaker than the love of local independence. But an ideal unity was realized. It was realized in those beliefs and institutions which we have just been considering. They fostered in the hearts of the Greeks a lively feeling of fellowship and a deep pride in Hellas, though there was no political tie. And it is to be noted that the Delphic oracle made no efforts to promote political unity, though unintentionally it promoted unity of another kind. If it had made any such efforts, they would certainly have failed, for the oracle had little influence in initiation. Greek states did not ask Apollo to originate or direct their policy. They only sought his authority for what they had already determined. We saw that the Boeotians were a member of the northern Amphictyony. The unity of Boeotia itself had taken the form of a federation, in which Thebes was the dominant power, being not only the federal capital, but, at all events in later times, being represented by two members on the board of the Boeotarchs, as the federal magistrates were called, whereas each of the other cities returned only one Boeotarch. Its religious center, for like all old Greek federations it was religious before it became political, was the sanctuary of Poseidon at Onchestus. In the seventh century it did not yet include Albotia, Orchomenus still resisted. But at length Thebes forced Orchomenus to join, and in the course of the sixth century the Grecian land of Oropus was annexed. The unity of Boeotia, thus completed, had its weak points. Its maintenance depended upon the power of Thebes. Some of the cities were reluctant members. Above all, Plataea chafed. She had kept herself pure from mixture with the Boeotian settlers, and her whole history, of which some remarkable episodes will pass before us, may be regarded as an isolated continuation of the ancient struggle between the elder Greek inhabitants of the land and the Boeotian conquerors. End of chapter 3, parts 7 and 8